postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. Our focus on the Story Church Podcast, as you saw in the intro, is uh, redesigning Adventism, right? And um, what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, How do we do it? That's pretty much what the Story Church Podcast is all about and there's one reason behind it and one reason only, and it's, it's pretty much this. I absolutely adore Adventism. I think the message of Adventism is hands down beyond anything I've encountered throughout all my studies and interactions with diverse worldviews and theological systems. Adventism just has got something about it that is just wow. And, and so my passion is saying, hey guys, we have this amazing story but here's the bottom line. We don't communicate it very well, man. We really, really don't. And so that's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. You know, how can we redesign Adventism to communicate effectively with emerging post-church generations? And um, right now we're on this cringeology uh, series. And so we are, we're looking at part five today. And the whole purpose of cringeology from day one has been to expose false beliefs within Adventism that get in the way of our story. Right, false beliefs within Adventism that damage our ability to do mission, and that's what the um, the four four episodes prior to this one have been all about: exposing these seven false ideas that kill Adventist mission. And now we are going to go into episode uh, number five, or rather, um, yeah, part five of the series. Uh, I'm, I got a little confused because it was an introduction as well, and the introduction is not technically part one. But anyways, we're into part five now, and so I'm super excited and ready to dive into it. Now, before I do, as always, thank you so much to all you guys who listen to this show. Um, It's not worth doing if people aren't listening, right? I mean, I do have a lot of fun doing it, but if nobody's listening, you know, what's the point of doing it? So thank you guys for listening because you guys are the ones who are keeping this thing alive and particularly to those of you who are patrons and who support the story church podcast on patron thank you so much as well because you allow this project to expand to a degree that it wouldn't be able to expand um without you so thank you so much and also a big shout out to the haystack uh, who are sponsors of the show as well the haystack life culture theology you guys got to check it out it is the voice of adventist millennials um, or millennials, rather, in the Adventist church. And so, I mean, come on, you know, why not check it out? They do some amazing stuff, amazing projects. So make sure you check out the Haystack. But thank you, Haystack. Thank you for um, backing up the Story Church podcast as well. Now, in the previous article uh, on cringeology, we, we touched on the cringy Adventist belief number four, and, and that was reclusivism. Now, if you haven't heard the previous episodes, you kind of have to. I'm sorry, right? Like, it's really difficult to appreciate what I'm going to say 
if you haven't heard the previous episode to this one, which was the one on reclusivism. And it's difficult to appreciate that one if you haven't heard the previous ones to that. So this is a series. Cringology is a series exposing seven false beliefs. Um, and so you kind of have to, you know, you got to listen to them in order so they, they build on each other. Um, and as I stated before, and I'm just going to make this really clear again, when I talk about Adventist beliefs, right, because that's, that's what we're exposing here, you know, seven false ideas or Adventist beliefs. When I'm talking about Adventist belief, I'm referring in this series to folk beliefs, okay? I'm not referring to actual Adventist theology. Um, and so the difference between folk beliefs and Adventist theology is Adventist theology is what is rooted and grounded in Adventist history and, and who we are and, and, and our, the message that we communicate to the world, whereas folk theology is just you know, little myths and things that have developed over the years that are not rooted in our theological narrative. Um, but these little myths, man, they, they kind of take a life of their own and they become really powerful and influential. Um, and so that's why we are dealing with them. And reclusivism, which we talked about in the previous podcast, um, it falls under this category of beliefs that we hold that aren't part of Adventist theology, but which began to emerge and gain cultural notoriety among us after the fundamentalist uh, invasion, if I, for lack of a better word, um, of the early mid to 1900s. So, um, or yeah, early to mid 1900s. Sorry, I totally, yeah, that made no sense. Early to mid 1900s. Uh, so in today's episode, what I'm going to do is I, I want to focus on cringy belief number five, and that's distinctivism. What is it? Why is it false? And how does it damage Adventist mission? Let's find out. Uh, so first of all, while each of the cringy beliefs in this series builds on one another, distinctivism kind of it kind of has a stronger, closer relationship to the previous belief, which was reclusivism, um, than some of the others. So they're all connected, but reclusive and the, reclusivism and distinctivism are, I guess, a little bit more tightly connected, if that makes sense. Um, and, and they're so closely linked, to be honest with you guys, that I almost didn't do this episode, all right? It, I almost was like, ah, they're so closely linked, you kind of, uh, you know, is it worth mentioning the other one? In, a, in its episode all on its own. Um, but in the end, I did feel that the difference between the two, even though it's very nuanced, um, is significant enough to explore. Uh, so let me summarize reclusivism again, just because it's it's so important for, for really grasping distinctivism and, and the difference between that and reclusivism. Um, and then we'll dive in. So in, in last week's post, we again, we talked about reclusivism as this false belief um, and it's the belief, the false belief that Adventist identity is threatened by non-Adventist thought. And so we must remain separate from everyone else to protect our identity, right? We retreat, we reclude from everyone else. Um, now, here's the thing. I didn't mention this in last week's episode, but I'll mention it now. Reclusivism actually isn't 100% wrong. So, for example, like before you throw digital tomatoes at me, right? For example... If Adventism remained separate to evangelicalism during the early 1900s, we might never have become fundamentalist. And the dramas of the past 80 years might never have happened. I mean, can you imagine no 1919 fundamentalist conference, right? No, which possibly means no questions on doctrine crisis, which possibly means no ML Andreessen, no last generation theology, no Desmond Ford. I mean, Fundamentalism is at the root of much of the dramas that we've had um, in the last 80 years or so. And so, in a sense, I mean, what would have happened had Adventism remained distinct during that time and not accepted the fundamentalist influence? It's very possible that our history would be very different and that our church would potentially be miles ahead in its mission today 
if none of these events which have held us back um, had taken place. Now, while there is a, a value in, in, in this, what I'm referring to as a degree of separateness, um, reclusivism goes beyond by suggesting that no non-Adventist influence whatsoever can be among us. And this is what I said in the previous article is not simply radical and cultish, but Adventism itself would fall apart because so much of who we are and where we come from is rooted in non-Adventist thought and practice. Uh, so it's just not a sustainable belief. But I, I won't comment anymore on that because I already did a whole episode. So I want to move on um, to, to distinctivism because basically what we're dealing with here is a very similar relationship between reclusivism and distinctivism. Um, and, and basically what happens is this reclusivism due to its radical exaggeration of Adventist uniqueness leads people down the track of distinctivism. This is where they're so closely related, right? And distinctivism is all about being distinct or different. So like reclusivism, there's an element of truth to this. So I want you to, again, to just kind of take a journey down memory lane with me in Adventist history. Had Adventists aimed to be different, the dramas that women faced in ministry during the fun fundamentalist onslaught of the 1950s would never have happened among us. And believe you me, like there were some dramas. Like today we're debating whether or not women should be, you know, ordained. But back then, I mean, it was it was worse than that. It was even couldn't even be a secretary, right? Like it was it was worse than that. Um, and so had we remained different to the evangelical fundamentalist churches around us, then that wouldn't have happened. Um, instead, we would have continued to affirm women in ministry as, as Ellen White did, particularly during her, her life, rather than pushing them away to mimic the evangelical fundamentalists. And likewise, Adventism basically essentially mirrored the practices of the Jim Crow era, um, even denying black Adventists access to white Adventist hospitals. And at the GC, there was a separate entrance that was used for whites and blacks, and the cafeteria was also segregated. So had Adventism actually taken its call to be distinct seriously, we would have never mimicked these unjust and heinous practices. So I got to be honest here from the get-go, when we talk about distinctivism, um, it's not all bad, right? So then the tragedy is that like reclusivism, distinctivism is the victim of fundamentalist imbalance. And what this does is it leads the Adventist distinctivists to believe that for a person to be truly Adventist, they have to remain distinct in just about everything, right? Including fashion, musical taste, the way they talk, worship practice, and other issues of minor importance. Um, and I'll mention this again later on. It's, it's kind of interesting that most distinctivists within the church never talk about stuff like Jim Crow or, you know, um, patriarchy, sexism, right? They, they usually linger around really minor issues. Um, so distinctivism, basically, it's the belief that Adventists, to remain truly Adventist, must remain distinct to the emergent world around them. Now, in case you're still struggling to put your finger on precisely what distinctivism is, let me, let me give you some phrases that you may have heard in church that reflect um, this idea well. Uh, phrases like, <clears throat> we want to sing with hymnals on our hands, not the words on a screen, because the words on a screen, that's copying the celebration churches, and we're called to be different, right? Um, or, Adventists should not decorate their church for Christmas because we're not meant to be like the world. Um, you might have heard that. Or, there used to be a day when you could spot an Adventist walking down the street just by the way they dress, right? No jewelry, formal attire, modest, etc. 
Um, or, hey, the youth want to sing this new style of music because they're copying the Pentecostal churches. This is not Adventist music. Um, which is weird because it's like, what exactly is Adventist music? Anyway, moving on. Um, we're meant to be a peculiar people, so everything we do has to be different. So you might have heard these phrases before. And now some of these examples, I granted, they probably like barely exist anymore depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, everybody was whinging about celebration churches. I, I think we're kind of past that. I mean, I'm sure there's places in the, in, in the world where there's Adventists who still are hung up on that. But I think for the most part, you can catch my drift. Like this desire to be different for the sake of being different because we're called to be different um, is essentially what distinctivism boils down to. And even though some of these phrases may not necessarily be repeated anymore these days, um, the spirit behind them is still alive and well in many of our churches. So the, the question that follows this is, well, why is distinctivism false, right? Like what makes it wrong? Um, and I gotta be honest, and I wanna be careful here because you know, I, I, I think everyone, regardless of how much I might disagree with them, deserves a, a level of respect, right? Um, and I, I wanna show respect to the distinctivist. But at the same time, uh, the errors of distinctivism are so easy to spot. It it does kind of blow my mind that this idea still still persists, right? So it, it doesn't take a lot of mental work, I guess, to see how exaggerated and inaccurate the entire thing is. If, for example, distinctivism was applied consistently a hundred years ago, all right. So let's let's play this game, right? Let's go back a hundred years and let's apply the same logic of the modern day distinctivist to a hundred years ago. Um, Adventists back then, in their desire to be distinct from everyone around them, should have refused on pain of death to sing hymns. Because guess what? All the Sunday churches sang hymns. So our forefathers should have refused to sing hymns because after all, we must be distinct. And I think from that one example, you can kind of catch why it's like kind of a silly Silly idea. Um, they should have also refused to wear plain formal clothes because guess what? A hundred years ago, the kind of clothes people wore to school, work, and even the bar was the same kind of clothes people used to go to church. So for example, if, if you look at my blog, um, there's a photograph on this particular blog, but you can, you can also just Google it. Like Google bar 1950s, right? Just a bar where people go to get drunk 1950s. And what you're gonna find is picture after picture of people, men and women, wearing the same clothes that men and women in those days wore to go to church on the weekend, right? It was formal attire, they wore suits, they wore ties, they wore dress shirts, you know, women with their long skirts and modest, you know, attire. This is what they wore to, to go to the bar. Um, in fact, even gangsters and criminals back then wore formal dress in those days. So. I guess my question is following this logic is shouldn't we have worn something else in order to be peculiar and distinct? If we showed up to church in a suit and a tie with a vest on, were we not looking identical to notorious mafioso Al Capone? Uh, should our forefathers not have followed the biblical instruction to come out of her and be separate? Quote unquote. Um, and what about the architecture of our churches, which comes from other churches? Sabbath school, which we copied from the popular Sunday schools of the day. Pews, lecterns, stained glass windows, musical styles, instruments like organs and pianos, all copied from other churches and pagan cultures as well. 
Um, and it doesn't end there. There's also secular elements present all throughout our services. Microphones are secular. Bulletins are secular. Announcement boards are secular. The electricity, which powers the church on Sabbath because someone's in a power plant working on Sabbath. You know, <laughs> and, and what about the custom of dressing up for church, which emerged during a time where people began to copy the dress-up cocktail parties of the rich? Um, and you can read about that in the book Pagan Christianity, right? Dressing up for church was a trend that sort of emerged in the church pretty, pretty, you know, I don't remember the exact year, but pretty late in the game. It wasn't, it, if you don't go back to the New Testament and find that there was debates over whether people should dress up to go to church. Um, and so this was a trend that emerged um, at a time where people finally had the capacity to sort of look rich, right? It was the birth of the middle class. They could sort of look rich even though they weren't. And they were copying the cocktail parties of the rich and um, and doing this at church. And, and so, you know, what should we do? Should we all of a sudden tell people, hey, we're meant to be distinct from the world, no more dressing up to go to church, you know? Uh, church buildings themselves, right? They're, they're rooted in paganism and the order of service that we use every Sabbath. It's a man-made system. It's not found in scripture and so on and so forth. So basically, distinctivism is it's just false because it's a ridiculous and unlivable idea, right? If you really, really, really tried to be distinct in everything you did, you you just wouldn't be able to live, right? So most distinctivists actually recognize this. And so what they end up doing is they apply their distinctivism only in certain areas because in the end, the kind of distinctiveness they give lip service to has never ever existed and it never will. It's radical, it's exaggerated, right? So so then the question is, well, you know, like, so why do people push for it now? Which I'm gonna answer that when we get to the last episode of this series and I talk about Eurocentrism. But for now, I wanna talk about how this belief kills Adventist mission, all right? Um, so number one, this is how distinctivism kills Adventist mission. Number one, our churches become museums. And, and here's the thing, like it's tough to be different for the sake of being different, right? And so this is what generally tends to happen. If you're obsessed with being different, then oftentimes the only ally you have is the past. Uh, and this is one of the fallacies, for example, um, with all due respect, um, of Amish thought, right? Like, and, and I don't know if this is an official Amish belief, but it's certainly one I've encountered among Amish people, that their communities retain this outdated dress and lifestyle. And the reasoning is that they are avoiding becoming like the world. But the problem is that they are like the world. It, it might be a world from 100 years ago, but it's still the world. And for some reason, distinctivists think that retaining the ways of the past is synonymous with not being worldly. Um, so in this way of thought, we retain our distinction by remaining stuck in a bygone era, basically. And so the world continues to move and flow, but we remain exactly where we left off for 100 years. And the tragedy of this mentality is that the church becomes like a museum, right? People step in and they feel like they got transported to a time and place that they can't relate to or connect with. And so instead of the gospel in church speaking the language of the generation, it loses its touch with its contemporaries and basically fades into irrelevance. Uh, number two, um, I'm talking about how this belief kills Adventist mission. Uh, so that was number one. Here's number two. Our people are always on the attack, right? That's what distinctivism does. It puts our people always on the attack. Once again, um, because it's tough to be different for the sake of being different. And so one of the ways in which people demonstrate this is by attacking anything and everything new because it's way easier to demonize what is new than it is to honestly evaluate it with all of its complexities and variables. 
So in a distinctivist culture, basically the lazy way of dealing with culture prevails, right? You attack it. That's it. You just attack it. Um, and the tragedy here is, once again, you have an entire community of people who become incapable of hearing and understanding the heart of emerging generations because they spend more time attacking, demonizing, and slandering the culture than actually trying to reach it. So, for example, man, like think of the mountain of DVDs and books Adventists have published against Hollywood, pop music, movies, and even superheroes over the decades, right? Not a single one of those resources actually attempts to use them as windows into the heart of the culture. Instead, they just go on the attack with sensational headlines about how your eternal life and that of your children is in peril and... I don't know, this, this kind of culture is bound to fuel a fear-driven faith that is out of touch with its surroundings. And, um, and this is a tragedy of a culture that is focused on distinctivism for the sake of being distinct. Number three, and I think for me, this is where, this is the most important one. Distinctivist cultures within the church, when, when it sort of runs the way we think and relate to God and to faith, it we forget about the weightier matters of the law. That's, that's the bottom line. We forget about the weightier matters of the law. Now, how do I explain this? Um, I think somebody needs to do a study on this, basically. Maybe somebody already has. If you have or you're aware of it, you know, send the link my way. I'd love to read it. Um, but for some strange reason, distinctivism, at least within Adventism, as I mentioned before, it seems to revolve around minor issues. It's kind of like perfectionism, right? Like you talk about, you know, you, you talk with perfectionists and they're usually obsessed with things like, do you eat cheese? Do you drink coffee? You know what I mean? Like, um, rather than with the weightier matters of the law. And distinctivism is basically the same thing. Um, and so what I've found, and again, this is why I'd like, I'd love to see a study on this. I think it'd be fascinating. But what I found over the years is that instead of distinctivists, call in the church to be peculiar by becoming a community of faith that demonstrates racial harmony, right? Gender equality and active practical love. Distinctivism seems to lead us to focus on minor issues that it then turns into tests of fellowship and spirituality. So this is why distinctivists will, for example, complain about pastors who don't use ties or youth listening to Hillsong. But they're usually silent on issues like human trafficking or racism in the church or the plight of migrants and the prevalence of abuse in the church. You don't really hear a lot of that from the distinctivists. So the more a church culture becomes like this, the less likely it is to reach young emerging secular generations because it simply attracts more hyper-religious minds and the toxic cycle intensifies. So basically, reclusivism, which is stay away from non-Adventists, and distinctivism, which is be as different from non-Adventists as you can be, um, they go hand in hand, and they're both radicalized versions of Scripture's call to be in, but not of. To be separate, but to be salt, right? And salt, in order to work, it has to mingle, like that's kind of the point, right? To be different in character, but relatable in practice. And so in the end, I do believe, as I've mentioned a few times already in this episode, like we should be different from the world. Um, that should be our aim. But we need to have a sensible and practical understanding of what the word different means, okay? Different is not, hey, the youth are wearing Roman skirts instead of Jewish ones, right? I'm kind of putting myself in the first century of Christianity here, right? Different is 
these people love like God loves and nobody else does. Why, why do they love this way, right? So I find it helpful, for example, for my own personal life, I find it helpful to think, to think of different in terms of character, not personality or style or culture. Those things are usually neither here nor there. But my character, right? Like I want a character that reflects God, that reflects his character. Um, even if that means that in other areas of my life, I don't actually look that different which is okay because nobody really does, as I've already <laughs> explained. Um, now, of course, there's another thing, and it's this. I think we can gain a lot by balancing what we mean by different with Paul's own experience, right? So there's this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22 um, that really exemplifies this, where Paul says, and I quote, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those without the law, I became like one without the law, though I am not outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. End quote. And so what are we seeing in this verse? Is Paul being a radical distinctivist who is just aiming to always stand out like a sore thumb? No. Um, rather, he is incarnating with the people that he's trying to reach. And in many ways, he's becoming like them so that he can actually relate to them and, and connect with them. And the line that we should draw when it comes to being like the world isn't the line necessarily of culture and style but the line of character. We should always draw that line, right? You do not become less loving and more unjust for the sake of reaching people, right? Like that doesn't work. Um, so I hope that makes sense, guys. I hope that makes sense. Now, next week, we're going to drive into cringy belief number six, which is cynicism. And I'm looking forward to that because we're going to be talking about this tendency within Adventism to take the end times message that we have and hand it over to Satan on a silver platter and say, hey, this is your, this is your time to shine <laughs> uh, in the narrative of scripture. We're going to give this one completely over to you and then we're going to spend all our time talking about it. Um, cynicism, a cynical view of end times. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Damage's mission, how it kills Adventist mission. Can't wait for that. See you guys then. But at least for today, I hope that you guys get like a good grasp on this whole idea of reclusivism and distinctivism, that they're not 100% erroneous in and of themselves, but that we have to have a sensible, balanced understanding of what they mean so we don't end up going so far off the ledge that rather than reaching people, we actually push them away. All right, guys, thank you so much for hanging out. I will catch you next week.